Hello there. It is just after lunchtime. What did you have for lunch today? Hmm? I had edamame. I love edamame. And I had a Boca burger. Do you remember Boca burgers? Is that what they're called? It's by a company called Morningstar. It was really good. What did you have for lunch today? Did you have a milkshake? Oh, some french fries. <clears throat> Hopefully you don't hear my puppy going crazy on the floor. He was just chewing on this. Yeah, that little stinker. We are on to <clears throat> chapter five of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter five, a full-fledged school ma'am. When Anne reached the school that morning, for the first time in her life, she had traversed the birch path, deaf and blind to its beauties. All was quiet and still. The preceding teacher had trained the children to be in their places at her arrival, and when Anne entered the schoolroom, she was confronted by prim rows of shining morning faces and bright, inquisitive eyes. She hung up her hat and faced her pupils, knowing that she did not look as frightened that she, hoping that she did not look as frightened and foolish as she felt, and that they would not perceive how she was trembling. She had sat up until nearly twelve the preceding night, composing a speech she meant to make her pupils upon opening the school. She had revised and improved it painstakingly, and then she had learned it off by heart. It was a very good speech, and had some very fine ideas in it, especially about mutual help and earnest striving for knowledge. The only trouble was that she could not now remember a word of it. After what seemed to her a year, about ten seconds in reality, she said faintly, "'Take your testaments, please,' and sank breathlessly into her chair under cover of the rustle and clatter of desk lids that followed. While the children read their verses, Anne marshaled her shaky wits into order and looked over the array of little pilgrims to the grown-up land. Most of them were, of course, quite well known to her, her own classmates had passed out in the preceding year, but the rest had all gone to school with her, excepting the primer class and ten newcomers to Avonlea. Anne secretly felt more interest in these ten than in those whose possibilities were already fairly well mapped out to her. To be sure, they might be just as commonplace as the rest, but on the other hand, there might be a genius among them. It was a thrilling idea. Sitting by himself at a corner desk was Anthony Pye. He had a dark, sullen little face, and was staring at Anne with a hostile expression in his black eyes. Anne instantly made up her mind that she would win that boy's affection and discomfit the Pyes utterly. In the other corner, another stranger boy was sitting with Artie Sloane, a jolly-looking little chap with a snub nose, freckled face, and big light blue eyes fringed with whitish lashes, probably the Donnell boy, and, if resemblance went for anything, his sister was sitting across the aisle with Mary Bell. Anne wondered what sort of mother the child had to send her to school, dressed as she was. She wore a faded pink silk dress, trimmed with a great deal of cotton lace, soiled white kid slippers and silk stockings, 
their sandy hair was tortured into innumerable kinky and unnatural curls, surmounted by a flamboyant bow of pink ribbon bigger than her head. Judging from her expression, she was very well satisfied with herself. A pale little thing with smooth ripples of fine, silky, fawn-colored hair flowing over her shoulders must, Anne thought, be Annetta Bell, whose parents had formerly lived in the Newbridge School District, but, by reason of hauling their house fifty yards north of its old site, were now in Avonlea. Three pallid little girls crowded into each seat were certainly the Cottons, and there was no doubt that the small beauty with the long brown curls and hazel eyes, who was casting coquettish looks at Jack Gills over the edge of her testament, was Prilly Rogerson, whose father had recently married a second wife and brought Prilly home from her grandmother's in Grafton. A tall, awkward girl in a back seat, who seemed to have too many hands and feet, Anne could not place it all, but later on discovered that her name was Barbara Shaw and that she had come to live with Avonlea with an aunt. She was also to find that if Barbara ever managed to walk down the aisle without falling over her own or somebody else's feet, the Avonlea scholars wrote the unusual fact up on the porch wall to commemorate it. But when Anne's eyes met those of the boy at the front desk facing her own, a queer little thrill went over her, as if she had found her genius. She knew this must be Paul Irving, and that Mrs. Rachel Lynde had been right for once when she prophesied that he would be unlike the Avonlea children. More than that, Anne realized that he was unlike other children anywhere, and that there was a soul subtly akin to her own, gazing at her out of the very dark blue eyes that were watching her so intently. She knew Paul was ten, but he looked no more than eight. He had the most beautiful little face she had ever seen in a child, features of exquisite delicacy and refinement framed in a halo of chestnut curls. His mouth was delicious, being full without pouting, the crimson lips just softly touching and curving into finely finished little corners that narrowly escaped being dimpled. He had a sober, grave, meditative expression, as if his spirit was much older than his body. But when Anne smiled softly at him, it vanished into a sudden answering smile, which seemed an illumination of his whole being as if some lamp had suddenly kindled into flame inside of him, irradiating from top to toe. Best of all, it was involuntary, born of no external effort or motive, but simply the outflashing of a hidden personality, <coughs> rare and fine and sweet. With a quick interchange of smiles, Anne and Paul were fast friends forever, for a word had passed between them. The day went by like a dream. Anne could never clearly recall that afterwards. It almost seemed as if it were not she who was teaching, but somebody else. She heard classes and worked sums and set copies mechanically. The children behaved quite well. Only two cases of discipline occurred. Morley Andrews was caught driving a pair of trained crickets in the aisle. Anne stood Morley on the platform for an hour and, which Morley felt much more keenly, confiscated his crickets. 
She put them in a box and on the way home from school set them free in Violet Vale. But Morley believed then and ever afterwards that she took them home and kept them for her own amusement. <clears throat> the other culprit was Anthony Pye, who poured the last drops of water from his slate bottle down the back of Aurelia Clay's neck. Anne kept Anthony in at recess and talked to him about what was expected of gentlemen, admonishing him that they never poured water down ladies' necks. She wanted all her boys to be gentlemen, she said. Their little lecture was quite kind and touching, but unfortunately, Anthony remained absolutely untouched. He listened to her in silence with the same sullen expression and whistled scornfully as he went out and sighed and then cheered herself up by remembering that winning a pie's affection like the building of Rome wasn't the work of a day. In fact, it was doubtful whether some of the pies had any affections to win, but Anne hoped better things of Anthony, who looked as if he might be a rather nice boy if one ever got behind his silliness. When school was dismissed and the children had gone, Anne dropped wearily into her chair. Her head ached, and she felt woefully discouraged. There was no real reason for discouragement, since nothing very dreadful had occurred. But Anne was very tired, and inclined to believe that she would never learn to like teaching, and how terrible it would be to be doing something you didn't like every day for, well, say, forty years. Anne was of two minds, whether to have her cry out then and there, or wait till she was safely in her own white room at home. Before she could decide, there was a click of heels and a silken swish on the porch floor, and Anne found herself confronted by a lady whose appearance made her recall a recent criticism of Mr. Harrison's on an overdressed female he had seen in a charlatan store. She looked like a headlong collision between a fashion plate and a nightmare. The newcomer was gorgeously arrayed in a pale blue summer silk, puffed, frilled, and shirred wherever puff, frill, or shirring could possibly be placed. Her head was surmounted by a huge white chiffon hat, bedecked with three long but rather stringy ostrich feathers, a veil of pink chiffon, lavishly sprinkled with huge black dots, hung like a flounce from the hat brim to her shoulders and floated off in two airy streamers behind her. She wore all the jewelry that could be crowded on one small woman and a very strong odor of perfume attended her. <clears throat> I am Mrs. Donnell, Mrs. H.B. Donnell announced this vision, and I have come in to see you about something Clarice Almira told me when she came home to dinner today. It annoyed me excessively. I'm sorry, faltered Anne, vainly trying to recollect any incident of the morning connected with the Donald children. Clarice Almira told me that you pronounced our name Donald. Now, Miss Shirley, the correct pronunciation of our name is Donnell. Accent on the last syllable. I hope you'll remember this in the future. I'll try to, gasped Anne, choking back a wild desire to laugh. 
I know by experience that it's very unpleasant to have one's name spelled wrong, and I suppose it must be even worse to have it pronounced wrong. <laughs> Certainly is. And Clarice Almira also informed me that you call my son Jacob. He told me his name was Jacob, protested Anne. I might well have expected that, said Mrs. H. B. Donnell, in a tone which implied that gratitude in children was not to be looked for in this degenerate age. That boy has such plebeian taste, Miss Shirley. When he was born, I wanted to call him St. Clair. It sounds so aristocratic, doesn't it? But his father insisted he should be called Jacob after his uncle. I yielded because Uncle Jacob was a rich old bachelor. And what do you think, Miss Shirley? When our innocent boy was five years old, Uncle Jacob actually went and got married. And now he has three boys of his own. Did you ever hear of such ingratitude? The moment the invitation of the wedding was sent, for he had the impertinence to send us an invitation, Miss Shirley, came to the house, I said, no more Jacobs for me. Thank you. From that day, I called my son St. Clair, and St. Clair, I am determined he shall be called. His father obstinately continues to call him Jacob, and the boy himself has a perfectly unaccountable preference for the vulgar name. But St. Clair he is, and St. Clair he shall remain. You will kindly remember this, Miss Shirley, will you not? Thank you. I told Clarice Almira that I was sure it was only a misunderstanding, and that a word would set it right. Donnell, accent on the last syllable. And St. Clair, on no account, Jacob, you'll remember. Thank you. When Mrs. H.B. Donnell had skimmed away, Anne locked the school door and went home. At the foot of the hill, she found Paul Irving by the birch path. He held out her cluster of the dainty little wild orchids which Avonlea children called rice lilies. Please, teacher, I found these in Mr. Wright's field, he said shyly, and I came back to give them to you because I thought you were the kind of lady that would like them, and because he lifted his big, beautiful eyes. I like you, teacher. You darling, said Anne, taking the fragrant spikes, as if Paul's words had been a spell of magic. Discouragement and weariness passed from her spirit, and hope upwelled in her heart like a dancing fountain. She went through the birch path light-footedly, attended by the sweetness of her orchids by a benediction. Well, how did you get along? Marilla wanted to know. Ask me that a month later, and I may be able to tell you. I can't now. I don't know myself. I'm too near it. My thoughts feel as if they had been all stirred up until they were thick and muddy. The only thing I feel really sure of having accomplished today is that I taught Cliffy Wright that A is A. He never knew it before. Isn't it something to have started a soul along a path that may end up in Shakespeare and Paradise Lost? Mrs. Lynde came up later on with more encouragement. That good lady had waylaid the school children at her gate and demanded of them how they liked their new teacher. And every one of them said they liked you, Splendid Anne, except Anthony Pye. Must admit he didn't. 
He said you weren't any good, just like all girl teachers. There's the pie leaven for you. But never mind. I'm not going to mind, said Anne quietly, and I'm going to make Anthony Pye like me yet. Patience and kindness will surely win him. Well, you can never tell about a pie, said Mrs. Rachel cautiously. They go by contraries, like dreams, often as not. As for that Donnell woman, she'll get no Donnelling from me, I can assure you. The name is Donnell, and always has been. The woman is crazy, that's what. She has a pug dog she calls Queenie, and it has its meals at the table along with the family, eating off a china plate. I'd be afraid of judgment if I was her. Thomas says Donnell himself is a sensible, hard-working man, but he hadn't much gumption when he picked out a wife. That's what. <laughs> That's the end of chapter five. Oh my gosh, how funny. So Anne has had her first day as a teacher. Um... My previous occupation was a teacher. My degree is in secondary music, edu music. <laughs> secondary music education, so conducting junior high and high school bands. Um, so music is like my jam. Performance is my jam. I grew up as a stage kid doing ballet. I have the weirdest set of skills and talents and background. Um, and I'll tell you, that first year was brutal. It is so hard. Bless you, teachers. It is so, so hard. Um, especially to balance that line of requiring and earning respect from your students um, rather than instilling fear. Um, that's really tricky. I think that's really tricky. My goodness, I think that's really tricky with your own children as well. One of the other things that I thought about as I read this was, so Anne had just kind of had a flurry of a day. She couldn't, she was kind of functioning, it sounds like, on autopilot as she taught, um, being nervous enough or out of sorts enough to not really be present with what she was doing. But it sounds like she did well. And she was really downtrodden. She was thinking to herself, could I really do this for 40 years? Something I don't want to do. And how many of us can relate to that? Oh, my gosh. Um, the responsibilities of caring for a family um, monetarily, along with all the other ways. Quit chewing pencils. My goodness. He's, this one was a Jenga piece. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> all the other ways, but also monetarily, which a lot of times means we do things for um, our occupations that aren't really enjoyable. Um, the other thing that I thought about was she was feeling that way. And then she came and had a quite ridiculous lecture about the importance of pronouncing um, this family's name right, even though that's not really, it sounds like, as Miss Rachel said, that's not how it's pronounced. It's Donnell, not Donnell. Could you hear the condescension in her voice that I tried to give her? Absolutely. So thick, saturated with that kind of false sweetness. I assured her it was a misunderstanding. Ugh, ick, gag me. Um, so I'm sure that didn't make her feel good. And then as she's walking home, little, uh, I already forgot his name. Irving, Irving, um, one of the new students that she felt like she had a 
deep connection with her uh, soulmates and not a romantic soulmate, but she has this thing for soul um, is waiting for her with flowers. And that by the time she had finished walking home, that little one act of kindness just washed away the dreariness, disappointment, the, the scary feelings of the day. And my thought was, have you ever had that happen to you? Or have you ever done that for somebody where... Um, <clears throat> I, I consider it the spirit, which by spirit I mean I personally believe it's like little whisperings from God who knows all and who looks out for his children is saying things like hey you should say this to this person or why don't you send this person a nice note or this person might need a meal um but other people might uh verse that as good vibes or intuition um that you just get this impression that like i should say something to that person and I can't tell you how many times I have had that happen to me. <laughs> and every once in a while, it falls totally flat. And they're like, no, I'm good. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I think you're great. That's all. <laughs> but more often than not, it's met with this like, I have been having such a hard time lately. And I have been just so desperate for those words or that small act of kindness or help and um and it doesn't always have to be things I don't bake I don't cook unlike Anne Anne is a great baker and I feel like that's a really great wonderful um I wouldn't say easy it's not easy to do but it's an easy gift meaning most people will love what you make right and because I don't do that I try to look for other ways to do things it's a little trickier so I Try to focus on sincere, genuine words of kindness or gratitude. And the other thing I do is readings like this. Um, trying to bring joy and service to other people. So maybe if someone's having a really hard time, um, maybe they had a bad day being their teacher at their first day of school, right? I'm hoping that they can have a moment to sit down, lay down. Maybe they're doing dishes or folding laundry or something pop in these recordings or these videos and just be able to hear the companionship that I'm trying to sincerely offer um, through storytelling, through these little conversations at the end and the beginning, and to help those people feel comforted and not alone. So this is what that is to me, what I'm trying to give to people. Um, and I have absolutely felt that from other people. There are times when Someone just says, hey, how are you? And they probably are expecting a fine. I kind of make it my goal, kind of. I make it my goal to be sincere in my answers. And some days I'm not fine. And I try not to make it like a really long answer, but I'll try to say, mm, let me think. Pretty okay. Today's pretty okay. The morning was kind of rough, but today's getting better. Nothing crazy, right? Um, and then it really gives that person an opportunity to listen and support me, um, which sounds selfish. But what I have found is that it also gives the other per person permission to share with me the same kinds of things. And they usually do. So it's, it's less about receiving that 
support, but I still gratefully accept it. And more about trying to normalize or give permission for my friends and acquaintances and the bagger lady at the grocery store or the checker outer person or the staff at the gym that I work with. Like, I'm constantly asking when the front desk guy's wife is going to have his baby and if it's come yet. Um, And the other guy has like a big brain tumor. My goodness, I've been asking him constantly like, so what's the plan? What's going forward? How are you feeling today? And um, little things that showing you sincerely care and interested, I think goes such a long way. Now I can say... um, sort of an asterisk by that. Not all people are super outgoing and willing to be socially really vulnerable and just be like, hey, random stranger, do you need help? Are you okay? And I don't want to invalidate or make you feel guilty that going up to random people and saying random stuff, um, I don't want you to make you feel guilty that that's not really an option for you. What I will say is that I know that there are ways that those people do really wonderful and just as touching things for other people. Maybe those are some of the people that bake and they just leave cookies on people's doorsteps. I will humbly accept any cookies that anyone has to offer. Uh, I love sweets. Sweets are my jam. Um, And maybe it's watching kids and babysitting for someone who needs a date night. Maybe it's giving a really sincere compliment, something that they were just thinking about. Or maybe if it's not verbal, maybe they're the kind of people that write a message. Yeah. Um, Again, if social anxiety is big and real for them, maybe they can um, ask a friend, a friend of a friend, right? Hey, I was kind of concerned about this. I got like a a weird vibe. I want to make sure everything was okay. Um, Asking how you can help. Um, Just helping people be seen and then even though they are seen, meaning that you see the good and the bad, some of the good and the bad, that like you still sincerely care for them and appreciate them and their presence on this earth, on this planet. Anyway, that was a long time for me to just tell you something that this made me think of. Those small acts of kindness, genuine acts of kindness that aren't made from obligation and don't incur resentment from the other person. Like, oh, I feel like I have to make that person cookies, you know? But when they just say something or do something that's so genuine and from the heart, the huge, huge change it can make to somebody, as it did Anne with those white lilies. Well, teacher, I I just like you. I like you, teacher, you know? Anyway, just think about that thought for the day. (laughs) I'll see you in chapter six tomorrow, I think. Bye.